Welcome to My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast, a long-expected party celebrating the Lord of the Rings films nigh 20 years hence. Usually we work through the films, one scene at a time, but this is some other devilry. The story of Middle-earth is deeply tied to the bonds of fellowship our characters hold, and we want to do episodes that allow us to delve greedily into them to show their quality. A wizard is never late, Frodo Baggins. Nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I'm Emily, also known as J.R.R. Tweeting. Today's episode is The White Rider, an analysis and discussion of Gandalf, both gray and white, and most of all, Emily's absolute favorite character. (laughs) But first, our spoiler warning. While the ring may have passed out of all knowledge and memory, these movies have not. We assume you know them well enough, and we'll also be greedily delving into the source text, interviews, commentaries, and maybe even the Hobbit films. So Gandalf, uh, he is, uh, who is he? He's a fucking wizard. Uh, he is the older mentor figure for Frodo. All of this stuff doesn't really matter because the, the, the topic on everybody's minds is the incredibly memorable, uh, and important and high quality Disney plus TV show streaming now, please God pay us Disney, uh, called Obi-Wan Kenobi or Kenobi or Obi-Wan. I can't remember what it's actually called because it's uh, utterly forgettable. Uh, the gist of it though, is that there is a guy who you may remember from, uh, the 19 other Star Wars uh, films, uh, who acts as a mentor figure to uh, young Luke Skywalker, young twinkish Luke Skywalker in A New Hope, and then promptly dies, and then for some reason we needed uh, hundreds of thousands of hours of content about this dude, uh, even though he was literally <laughs> just a fucking archetype for a, for a, for a narrative that was not particularly uh, radical in nature. Um, but why are we so fascinated by Obi-Wan Kenobi? Uh, I ask in my most uh, Vanity Fair ass uh, writer, headline writer voice. <laughs> well, <laughs> Obi-Wan Kenobi, as I said, fits this perfect archetype of the mentor. Uh, and we all sort of long for uh, old men uh, with long beards to tell us what to do so that we don't have to figure it out for ourselves. Um, and, you know, it, it, he fits this kind of uh, a perfect sort of cultural figure that, that that has kind of sustained Western lit, uh, the Western canon for for as long as uh, the quote-unquote cultural West, as grim as that sound, has, has existed. Um, and Gandalf really is the kind of the modern prototype for this this figure. You know, you can't have an old dude with a beard uh, without everybody being like, hey, that's Gandalf, for example. Dumbledore in uh, Harry Potter, the Harry Potter series, or Obi-Wan Kenobi when he gets a slightly long Alec Guinness beard. Uh, I say that as if he didn't start out with that beard. (laughs) He obviously did. Um, But, uh, you know, this old kind of mentor figure, this wizard who has some untapped potential or some connection to, uh, again, to borrow the Obi-Wan Kenobi phrase, a wider world. is, is, is like a really compelling sort of trope and, and archetype, I guess. And before we get into like the history of Gandalf in particular, and because I'm trying to be so fucking pleasant about this character, um, I do think it probably merits some chat about the archetype. Um, I feel like I've beat the Obi-Wan Kenobi horse to death there, but let's just let that one rip, I guess. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, it makes sense. Kenobi is, or Star Wars is probably the most accessible touchstone for like modern day myths and i don't say that with any kind of reverence (laughs) at this point but um i I mean it's a inflection of what like merlin was to uh like king arthur specifically 
Um, and it's like a very essential in terms of modern storytelling to like the very traditional uh, hero's journey trope. Um, you know, usually the hero in question has a mentor um, and they lose that mentor. And that's, you know, part of their growth of like trying to fill in the gap that was left with that mentor. Um, I like there's a ton of them in like Game of Thrones, A Song of Ice and Fire. Basically, every person like Arya and John and Daenerys all have their own like wizened old man to talk to um, that kind of helps them, but then kind of leaves them. And then they have to kind of do the rest of the growth on their own. And I, I don't know. It just I, it feels like uh, old men doing magic seems to be just a thing. Like even in like all the RPGs and Dungeons and Dragons is like if someone's going to be a magic user, it's like for some reason it's either like a 16 year old girl or like an 80 year old man and like nothing in between. I don't know if that has to do with like you know, like some gender essentialism about like, you know, adult male age 18 to 36 should have a sword and sandals and, you know, he should fight physically, but anyone kind of outside of that, like, you know, gender and age bracket has to like do stuff other ways yeah. um, outside of traditional like warfare and belligerence. So um, I had, it's kind of interesting how it's persisted and how it's persisted in almost this very singular way. Cause even like in like modern star Wars, like, Luke Skywalker in The Last Jedi is basically a version of it. Um, it's supposed to be an inversion and, you know, would have stuck if, like, fans weren't absolute shitheads about that yeah. movie. But, like, you know, that that itself is, like, that old wise and leader. And um, I think one of the enjoyable parts of The Last Jedi, a movie I enjoy fully, is the fact that the mentor, Luke, actually goes on a real journey in that, whereas someone like Obi-Wan Kenobi in Star Wars A New Hope is... He's kind of just there to kind of set things up. And, you know, he shows up again as a ghost and, like, guides Luke for, you know, brief moments here or there. But it's really that character exists to be in service of the main protagonist. Um, and I really like when a story like The Last Jedi takes its time and be like, actually, let's make that guy's, the guy who's only there to buttress someone else, let's make his story just as integral and essential and thematically resonant as the main story. Yeah, Okay, so this is actually like a, a a question that I've got for you because, like, you know, Obi Wan Kenobi and the original trilogy in, in Star Wars and Empire and Return of the Jedi has this sort of, and I think it's kind of entirely accidental because they really weren't fucking planning this stuff uh, out like uh, maybe the history books have now retconned it to be. Um, but he he goes from being this sort of like paragon of moral virtue he is the like you know he's dressed in the light color robes to darth vader evil satan's all black um and and that is who we sort of see die in uh in in star wars and a new hope um and as we get further along in the star wars trilogy the original trilogy we, we kind of uncover that he's actually a bit of a shithead uh and you know there's the you know from a certain point of view line uh where it's like well yeah i didn't actually kill your father uh now twice i failed to kill your father uh, uh, it's uh, your dad turned to the dark side because I was such a liberal fucking shithead. Uh, I couldn't see the obvious fascism going on there, the fascist radicalization. And then to Return of the Jedi, uh, which is also now made much funnier by uh, by the existence of this TV show because Obi-Wan Kenobi was like, oh, yes, the chick that we are saving is your sister. Nope, not once does he say that. Uh, totally pretends to have never met her before, has no idea who she is. Uh, just let Luke have no fucking clue who this chick he's about to, you know, make out with is. And anyways, all of that to say I'm not venting or anything. Uh, I would never vent on this podcast. Um, you know, he, he kind of gets this like moral 
grayness, I guess, to him. Like he ends up not being this kind of perfect moral figure that uh, he kind of starts out as being. Um, and I know there's if there's any sort of fantasy series on the go right now that is known for doing that not perfect moral uh, character, uh, it, it's it's A Song of Ice and Fire. Um, and like of those kind of like Gandalf-esque, Obi-Wan Kenobi-esque figures that you get in A Song of Ice and Fire, like do they typically tend to be that kind of like morally gray one or are they kind of the more like upstanding members of society? Um, I think it's definitely morally gray. So um, some of the best examples, like at least in terms of like the magical realm of things and like wizards or the equivalent of them, uh, we didn't really get a good adaptation of Blood Raven. That is the old man in the cave that Bran goes north to see. Um, and he is definitely Bran's mentor. And Bran is, you know, a major protagonist of the story. Do, just ignore the last three seasons of the television <laughs> show. That's absolutely how nothing's going to happen in the actual book. But like, uh, so we learn about Blood Raven just in the story, and we just know he's an old guy who has lived under this tree for a while. But then in some of the ancillary material, like uh, Fire and Blood or Duncan Egg, uh, Blood Raven was actually like, so he essentially was the hand of the king and kind of like a Varus type, like master of spies, master of whispers guy. And he just like flat out killed, you know, people who were trying to claim the throne or rebel against the throne. Like he was not a good dude. <laughs> Um, it's funny that you kind of led me towards the Song of Ice and Fire path because uh, my first thought is always um, Dumbledore. Um, mm -hmm. And I am a filthy heathen who really just watched the movies and like a lot and only read the books once after the fact. So like, I think it's like the beginning of Deathly Hallows 1 maybe where it's just like Dumbledore is like, you know, your kindly grandfather figure through the first six or seven films. And obviously there's a complex story there, mm. but then once he dies and like everyone starts talking about Dumbledore, it's like, oh yeah, he's just a fucking shit. He sucks. Yes. He like did this. Or what about his sister? Or what about mm -hmm. his brother? And like all, like all this stuff. And for me, initially, it was a little jarring mm -hmm. um, just because, you know, we had whatever, 14 hours of film with Dumbledore already. And now it's just like we're getting this like recontextualization. Mm. Uh, so and like that kind of blew my mind. But like, you know, going back, reading the books and watching the movies, I was like, OK, I, I get this. And then I kind of started seeing the parallels it has with, you know, stuff in A Song of Ice and Fire or even Ben Kenobi. Um, I didn't really think. Like, I never really framed Return of the Jedi as being one of those, oh, like, he's getting morally grayer. I think it definitely doesn't paint him in a great light and not as this, like, noble wizard leader guy that Luke believed him to be prior. Mm. But, like, I don't think it, like, muddied the waters as much for me. But I was also kind of like a kid, and I absorbed those stories when I was much younger and thinking less critically. Mm. Um, but with the Dumbledore thing, I was like, where did this come from? And then, like, it kind of made sense in the end, um, you know, how successful either the books or the movies were at conveying it. But it just, it was something that kind of stood out. And I feel like ever since Dumbledore did it, or I saw Dumbledore do it, I feel like I see it more and more in stories, even though I can't really come up with a great example right now. Yeah. Um, but I think that's, like, very common, especially because another trope in modern cinema, modern blockbusters specifically, is, like, one of your allies in the movie is going to turn on you halfway. Mm -hmm. um, that's just a thing. It's like the uh, villain hidden in plain sight kind of uh, theme. Um, and a lot of times that ends up being someone like 
um, the older person in charge. Well, I don't know why I'm thinking of uh, Minority Report, um, but like uh, Max von Sydow, who is also Blood Raven in Game of Thrones, um, <laughs> he is like the older um, spy soldier, whatever Tom Cruise agency is working for. He's like the older one. Um, and then he's revealed to be the big bad. And I just feel like, I don't, I don't, I don't know if there's like any like thematic, like, thrust to all this that ties all these things together but yeah. i kind of see what you're getting at that they because I, I i don't know if they ever like was merlin revealed to be like bad or a pedophile or something like yeah. um i just wasn't familiar with like that mentor actually he's a huge fucking piece of shit uh kind of trope emerging until the last 10 15 years at least in the media that i've consumed well this is like so this is funny because oh god yeah so you're right. God, Deathly Hallows would have been 15 years ago. Uh, so, so I remember when that book came out, and, and Deathly Hallows, I think. So I, I remember getting it and sitting on the like porch at my aunt's house uh, where we were staying, uh, and and reading that sucker in one go. Um, and and like I'm not saying this because it's like trendy to retcon and say that we've all hated J.K. Rowling like since the start. Like, no, I absolutely love those books like all the way through. I learned to read on them; they were great. And um, Deathly Hallows, though, uh, this has kind of just unlocked this memory for me. I haven't thought about it in a long time. Was a really <laughs> rough read for me. And you're right; it is that scene. Like, I think it's like chapter two or three of Deathly Hallows is bill and fleur's wedding at the borough mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. and they're exactly like it. yeah and it's the aunt the like overly perfumed aunt don't think too hard about the gender stuff there uh is like listening to harry talk to some other guy and, and she's like well actually dumbledore was a huge dick and oh rita skeeter has got like the scoop or whatever and harry's like oh well you know who gives a shit about rita skeeter she's a terrible journalist and um, but then it starts to be like this oh well you know there's the stuff with his sister and yeah maybe he wasn't as great as as we sort of thought and i remember being that that book came out in 2007 i think so i was like nine and i remember like having like a pit in the bottom of my stomach reading that being like oh fuck like this character that i thought was really good and sort of like in my like childhood sort of fictional brain always kind of trusted was like suddenly going to become something much worse and and sort of not more adult but like like a lot kind of scarier in some ways mm -hmm. um and, and i hadn't really thought about it until prepping for for this episode um but i think it's kind of part of jk rowling's attempt to whatever degree of success and you know I, I would say it's actually probably one of the more successful things she ever does uh did in in that series um it's her her attempt to solve uh what i'm gonna now call like the gandalf problem um and it's exactly what you're getting at there which is like you have these kind of nice chipper uh older men who come to act as a mentor and aren't like really uh you you know they're not they're not anything more than just like kind of morally on a binary like they are either good or they're bad and there's not really any in between um and so for the context of gandalf um who is a character like the world first met in the hobbit um he was a kind of silly kids book wizard uh you know the the fireworks magic is kind of the extent of what he does um he doesn't have a scene like in in the fellowship movie where he uh yells at gandalf or yells at bilbo rather and the room goes dark as a way of like telling you that that he is more powerful than than he sh he lets on no he is really just kind of a a cheerful old man who you know maybe meddles in other people's business but you know aren't all men old men like that at, at some point 
And by the time uh, Tolkien kind of gets bullied into writing The Lord of the Rings, um, and at the point at which he's sort of still thinking that uh, Bilbo is going to be the protagonist and this is going to be a sequel to The Hobbit, uh, and then later realizing that it's Bilbo's story is done and it's Frodo's time now, um, and that he needs to find some way for Frodo, who is of the Shire, which is this intensely cloistered uh, region to to have a link to the wider world and realizing that his only way of doing that is this silly childlike grandfather-like figure he's like oh shit how do i how do i make him be the link to this more serious kind of more not like more adult but like but but kind of more sophisticated world when before he was just the fucking guy who did pranks um, and like J.K. Rowling did that by being like, he's got a sorted past, Dumbledore's got a sorted past, and then later being like, he's gay. Uh, so make of that what you will. Um, and and uh, Tolkien solved it by being like, Bilbo's a fucking liar. Uh, everything that Bilbo said about Gandalf is bullshit. He also lied about the ring. Uh, and actually, uh, Gandalf is a much more terrifying uh, figure. And uh, And also he's got this insane backstory that goes through uh, since like the dawn of time. Tolkien has this problem of jokey prankster Gandalf, and he needs to make him serious gateway to the real world Gandalf. And one of the ways in his classic Tolkien brain that that he sees to handle this is by connecting Gandalf to about a billion years of history. And he does this through naming a race or like a subclass or subspecies for Gandalf. And and a lot of this stuff doesn't actually come out in The Lord of the Rings at all. So if you've read The Lord of the Rings and you're like, what the fuck? I don't remember this. That's totally fine. Most of the stuff is from the Silmarillion or the sort of auxiliary text that you get. Um, but Gandalf is of a race called the Astari, uh, shorthanded as the wizards. Um, the Astari are... Uh, well, they originally started out as Maiar, uh, and if you can remember back to however many millions of episodes ago when we did the sort of non-human taxonomy of, of Middle-earth, of Arda, um, the Maiar are kind of like the guardian angels, I guess, in some way, or like the vassal angels to the demigods that are the Valar. So... There's Eru Luvatar at the top of the totem pole, who is uh, God. Uh, then there are the Valar, uh, and they come in pairs, and they are, well, more or less in pairs, uh, and they are kind of like demigods. And then you get the angels, I guess would probably be the best way to call it, uh, who are the Maiar. Uh, and so like there's a Maiar who lights up the the sun, she moves the sun across the sky, and one who does the moon, he... he carries the moon across the sky while he's chasing the sun. Uh, Sauron himself was a Maiar who was corrupted. Um, and the Astari uh, are all Maiar. 
Um, and so the Maiar came to Arda uh, to help the Valar uh, shape the earth. Um, and, and so they are these incredibly ancient beings. Um, and they are also these incredibly ancient beings that tend to be uh, intimately connected to a, a single or one or two uh, Valar. So like Melian, um, who is Elrond, uh, if you could remember Elrond at this point, uh, Elrond's <laughs> great-grandmother, um, she was a, a Maiar of uh, Este the Gentle and Vanna the Ever Young. Uh, and so when you get down into the weird math, like Elrond is like 100, one out of one 256th uh, Maiar. Uh, it means it Jesus. should mean nothing to anybody, but there you go. There's the weird genetic math. Um, Sauron, as I said before, was a vassal of Aula, the smith, who is also the guy who created the dwarves. Um, and then you've got Gandalf. And Gandalf was a vassal of Banwe, who was the king of the Valar, uh, and his wife Varda, who was the queen of the Valar. Um, but... Despite this, he was actually most closely associated with Nyena, who is the Lady of Mercy. And we'll get back to that in a sec. Uh, Radagast the Brown, who you may remember uh, from the great films that are the Hobbit films, um, was closely associated with the Vala Yavanna, who's the queen of the earth and the giver of fruits. And then the two blue wizards, who are Palando and Alatar, uh, were vassals of Arome, uh, the huntsman. Um, who uh, I think I've briefly spoken about before in the context of the Rohirrim, uh, uh, deifying him and calling him Bema. Um, so these guys, they, the, the Maiar, they all chill in Valinor, uh, the, the, the uttermost West, uh, things are lovely there and they're, they're sort of paradisal gardens. Everything is great. Um, and then in year 1000 of the third age, uh, suddenly <laughs> the Valar are very aware that Sauron, uh, is stirring up some shit in Middle Earth. Um, and they decide, they elect to dispatch five of the Maiar to Middle-earth to help prepare the people of Middle-earth um, in their fight, in their inevitable struggle against the Lord of the Blackland. Um, and these five Maiar came to be known in Quenya as the Heranistarion, um, or the Order of the Wizards. So when this call goes out, or when when this sort of diktat is given that these five Maya are going to have to go, uh, Saruman and Alatar are the first to volunteer. Uh, that, I feel like, is quite an interesting kind of tidbit about uh, Saruman's character and, and what kind of guy he is even that far back. Um, Gandalf is slightly less enthusiastic. He's actually commanded by Manway to go. Um, and, and, and Gandalf sort of has this history of being kind of the, among the wisest of, of the Maya. So, so there is kind of good reason for that. Um, so, in the Third Age, they are sent to about a third of the way into the Third Age. Uh, they are sent to Middle-earth, and they are instructed to lead what I would like effectively call a monkish life. So, they have to appear to the world as old men. They have to dress simply, and their powers are severely curtailed. Um, the Valar, of course, um, very, very much aware that, that Sauron, who is currently terrorizing Middle-earth, uh, was at one point a Maiar, just like Gandalf and, and Saruman, and uh, used his powers to corrupt to be corrupted and to corrupt. Uh, so, you know, they kind of put a, a, a restraining bolt, let's call it, uh, on Gandalf Saruman, the Blue Wizards, and Radagast. Um, so these guys take to Middle-earth. They take to their their, their mission of preparing the, the peoples of Middle-earth for their fight against Sauron. Um, for the most part, the people of Middle-earth don't know who the fuck these guys are. Um, some of the elves know, some of the high elves, uh, the, the sort of descendants of the Noldor and their pals will, will, will be more or less aware. Um, but a lot of the peoples of Middle-earth just think they're elves. And that's something we'll also get back to in, in uh, a bit more about Gandalf's history. Um, but one thing that's really important is they are mostly disparate, lonely people. Um 
from the time they arrive in Middle Earth, they all kind of fanned out. The Blue Wizards went east to treat with the people who lived around the Sea of Rune and beyond. These are the Easterlings that show up in uh, The Lord of the Rings, so uh, the Blue Wizards not that successful. Um, Saruman traveled hither and thither in the south and in the near east, which is Harad, the Harajim. Those are the guys in the films that wear uh, eyeliner. Uh, mm-hmm. And Gandalf kind of did the same, but tended to uh, favor the north and west, which is why he gets so tied up in dwarvish politics and the Shire folk. Um, so by the time we get to the Ring War, it is literally only Gandalf who stayed true to the mission of defending or preparing the, the peoples of Middle-earth to defend themselves against Sauron. Um, the Blue Wizards basically kind of just fucked off on a vacation, I guess, and were kind of never really heard from again. Saruman uh, behaved very normally, uh, and then Radagast was a little bit weird. Uh, so yeah, Gandalf's kind of the only one that, that really uh, gets to uh, keep his title of his star. Uh, and that is also why he sent back from Moria. Um, unfortunately, this now means it's Gandalf time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, real quick, just before we get there, um, one thing that just kind of stuck out to me, um, something I wasn't able to piece together before, but was how the wizards were ordered to dress simply, um, which, you know, we very much see, especially in Gandalf. But I think in the book side of things, that's now like when Saruman reveals himself to be mm-hmm. the wizard of many colors and all that stuff. I feel like that feels all that much more poignant now, yeah. um, knowing that they were ordered not to do that. And that kind of like, completes like Saruman I, if he's betraying the order or I mean kind of is because he's helping Sauron when he's not supposed to be um, but I feel like that's that takes a little more symbolic significance in my mind now knowing that that is also not just he's casting down his Saruman the white persona but it's also in rejection of the purpose that he was sent to Middle Earth in the first place so I think that all works really well. Yeah. Um, it's also, it is kind of interesting because there's that, that kind of connection to, um, uh, we talked about this in, I think, the Morgoth episode, so I think that was probably many meetings, so a long time ago. Um, you know, both Morgoth and, and Sauron um, coveted things. They they loved to collect things and to have things and to possess possess things. Um, and as part of this, like, monkish lifestyle, um, all of the wizards are told to not do that. And, and so Radagast kind of cracks a bit um, because he, he, like, highly... There's no way of saying this that doesn't make it sound like I'm accusing him of fucking animals. I'm not accusing him of fucking <laughs> animals, but he like covets the relationships that he has with with the animals. Like he 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 is very pleased with himself that he is the kind of guy who can who can talk to and and uh, like intensely influence animals. Uh, and Saruman loves his control over men and loves the influence he can kind of wield. Um, and with that comes, you know, his desire to create his own ring, uh, his desire to have a tower, this permanent tower that that sticks out among the landscape of, of the otherwise kind of flat plains of, of Rohan. Um, and Gandalf, uh, by comparison, doesn't really have that uh and there's that kind of like moral virtuous element to to living the life of a of an, a sort of aesthetic i guess
It probably makes sense to start with names because Gandalf has fucking hundreds of them. The one we know best, of course, is Gandalf, um, which is how he's referred to in mostly the northwest of Eriador, um, or Middle-earth, north- northwest and Middle-earth being Eriador. Um, and Gandalf means wand elf. It's actually Anglo-Saxon, Old English. Um, and it la- laterally, I guess, in the meta history of the, the book and the character, uh, comes to reflect the fact that the folk of Eriador mostly thought he was a weirdo loner elf. Um then you've got, of course, Mithrandir in the language of the elves, um, which means uh, gray pilgrim um, or gray wanderer. Myth uh, is the the sort of silver gray element there in Sindarin. Uh, so you've got like the Arid Mithrin, which is the 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 gray mountains, uh, the silver mountains. Uh, however, you choose to translate that. Um, you, I was going to go through a whole bunch of the myth, uh, Mithland, uh, you know, the gray havens. Uh, there's a myth shows up a lot. So if you ever see it again in a in a Middle Earth related thing, uh, you now know that it means gray or silver. Mithra. Um, yeah, and Rander as well. Brandir, that's the other one. Bloth Rander, the, that means wanderer. <laughs> um, yep, yeah, so that's Mithrandir, Aloran. Uh, Aloran is actually the name that Gandalf had and used in Valinor. Um, and it's a Quenya name, uh, so derived from the Quenya word for like dream or like visionary of the mind, sort of intellectual. It's a way of being like, dude thinks a lot, brains uh, is what they called him. Um, then there's Icanus, uh, which is a name of kind of unknown linguistic origin, but probably comes from near Harad in the far south of Middle Earth. Um, it seems like it's probably a, a corruption of Quenya, of a Quenya word, um, and possibly means northern sky, uh, northern spy rather, to which I say, go home Gandalf, you Yankee fuck. Uh, <laughs> accidentally going full confederate here. Woohoo. Um, <laughs> death to Dixie. Um, then there's also Tharkun, uh, which is what the dwarves call him in Kuzzle. Again, that just means gray man. Uh, then you've got Greyhame, which is used as both a title and a surname. So sometimes you'll get Greyhame alone, or sometimes you'll get Gandalf Greyhame. The Roharam used this a lot, uh, and it just literally means gray, gray cloak. Uh, and then Grima and Theoden, uh, winning my hearts here in the weirdest way possible, uh, take turns dunking on him with a whole bunch of different names. So they call him like Lathspell and, and Stormcrow and it rules. Yeah, no, that's so funny. Because um, I think uh, Theoden, like in Sorcerer Theoden in the movies, calls him Gandalf Graham when he shows up. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't really know how I read that. Like, is he like having a stroke and just said something like Gandalf Grey? <laughs> <laughs> like, I literally had no idea that that was actually like a term that was used for him. So that's really funny. But I like I really love the in, invections. Is that the word for di- whatever uh, Grima is throwing at Gandalf when he shows up at Maduseld. Um I love all that stuff. Last spell, Stormcrow, ill news, ill guess. That's not a yeah. name. But I just love that he's like, I am just going to tear <laughs> tear this guy a new <laughs> asshole. <laughs> It's um, awesome. It's really great. It's the power of names as well, because like every time someone gets a name or is named by someone in Lord of the Rings, it tends to mean something. So, so Grima going, "I'm gonna fucking throw the book at this guy," <laughs> is awesome. <laughs> yeah, the other one I was kind of familiar with because I had a semi-viral meme that's now been deleted. But you know that meme of like the old person with the walker and then their like younger grandchild like okay let's get you to bed grandma kind of thing yeah. um and i had one with legolas walking gandalf uh like that is like back when i lived in valinor i was called olorin by manway is like <laughs> okay gandalf time to get you to bed <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's awesome it's, it's also because um i got in an argument about this online recently as i do uh, so 
So it's a Quenya name, right? So so it means that it's actually only as old as Quenya is, which means that 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 Gandalf had a name that predates that that we don't know. Um, and I got in an argument with some people online about whether or not Gandalf would refer to him as Gandalf, which is such a dumb argument to get in, but this is how I spend my time. Um, and I was like, well, surely, because he tends to prefer the Shire folk, he tends to prefer the people of the Northwest. Um, he uh, like like people who are not the the Gondorim. Uh, pretty much only the Gondrim, tend to uh, defer to the name Gandalf, default rather to the name Gandalf, um, instead of Mithrandir. So like Aragorn was raised in Cinder and would have spoken Cinder natively and chooses not to call him uh, by his Cinder name. He doesn't call him, he doesn't tend to call him Mithrandir, he calls him Gandalf. Uh, so I'm like, okay, Gandalf would have called himself Gandalf. And then someone else was like, oh no, he would have called himself Alarin, uh, because that's the Quenya name that he used in Dalinar. But then someone else was like, well, actually Quenya isn't really that old. And actually he probably has a name that's older than that. And we just don't know it. Uh, and uh, the point of this is, holy fuck, there are so many names that this old dude has. He probably has no idea who he is on a given day. Yeah. Um, I'm going to, cause, uh, when, the scenes where he revealed himself to the three hunters and Fangorn, like he really responds once Gimli like whispers Gandalf under his breath or whatever. Mm. So I'm going to take that as like his like chosen name or what he calls himself just because that's the one that like kind of snapped him. It's like, Oh yeah, that was my name. <laughs> Damn. Good job. Um, but <laughs> that, that's really like not based Mary on anything. Pippin in the background calling him Gandalf and like the sheer terror of that in that name <laughs> is enough to snap him back. <laughs> so um i've spoken quite about about valinor so far um i i don't tend to i don't know i just can't i don't really care about valinor lots of people lots of people lots of very smart people lots of very creative and interesting people care a lot about valinor and i'm like who gives a shit uh but i guess that's why uh i'm not religious really uh no goals have gone there um but gandalf was indeed in in valinor and um, where as i said earlier he was a vassal of manway and varda um, and there he was considered among, or not among, he was considered the wisest of all the Maiar. Um, so his vassalage to Varda is really interesting. Um, on this podcast, you've definitely heard her name before, but only in a Sindarin name. Uh, and she's Elbereth. Um, so she's the Vala who is most closely associated with light. Um, and she's also loved by the elves, um, mostly because she created the stars. Um, another sort of CV line for her, I guess, uh, that that uh, people with really good memories uh, who listen to this podcast might remember uh, is that she helped to uh, maintain the two trees of Valinor, Jor, Laurelin, and Telperion. Those are the ones that we maybe see in uh, in that weird Ring of Power, Rings of Power screenshot that they posted ages and ages and ages, and ages ago. Uh, once the uh, once Laurelin and Telperion were destroyed by Morgoth and Ungoliant. Um, Varda Elbreth uh, created the pathway for the sun and the moon and the sky. Um, she also fucked with Feanor and his Silmarils, uh, but that's another half funny, half bleak <laughs> story for a very different time. Um, so yeah, so she's associated with light, uh, and it's therefore no surprise that like Gandalf himself is also associated with fire and light. Remember that whole like wielder of the secret flame thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so he's got that. Uh, that one's fine. I don't really care about Manway. I think he's kind of a boring uh, god, demigod to be around. So the next one is Nienna. Um, and and 
he, he hung out sort of willingly uh, with Nienna. It was like he was kind of drawn to where she lived in, in Lorien, which is like a neighborhood, I guess, of, of Valinor. Um, and Nienna is the Maiar who is most closely associated with grief. Um, and she is sort of perpetually in a state of mourning for the, the wounds of the world that are done by evil. Um, those who come to Lorien to hear her speak um, learn her wisdom through endurance and grief. Um, and, and, and so she kind of like is the cornerstone of a, of a really kind of crucial theme that we're actually about to start getting into in, in some depth in, in the back half of uh, the, the film trilogy here, uh, which, which is Tolkien's uh, ongoing sort of internal dialogue around surrounding the question of pity. Uh, and what role pity plays in the world. Uh, and and I, I bring this up now, not because I have like any like <laughs> earth shattering conclusions to make, but I, but I do think it's actually really interesting uh, that uh, Gandalf sort of chose to associate himself with the, this figure of pity and grief and sort of grief as a motivating factor uh, in the world, uh, because I think that actually links up quite closely with, with how he sort of uh, behaves uh, when he gets to Middle Earth. Um, and then, you know, there's there's also the sort of aesthetic thing of, you know, Nana is closely associated with the color gray and Gandalf uh, himself when he comes to Middle Earth. Um, uh, you know, takes on a gray raiment and, it, uh, you know, has the name Graham. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so, so, so he's got these kind of two, like, uh, strong associations with like these sources of immense power through, through, through Varda and Nienna. Um, and then also the, the sort of motivating force of, of grief and pity, uh, and, and, and sort of care and, and, uh, care and interest in the things that are sort of small and and not as aggressive in life and and i think that that's you know that's the hobbit connection there really isn't it um so with with that sort of background to who he is and and uh his his sort of guiding force in life before he uh is sent forth from from valinor um he he goes in the year 1000 of the Third Age uh, and arrives in Middle-earth at Mithlond, uh, which is the Grey Havens, um, and that's where he is greeted by his pal Glorfindel, uh, who everybody should know at this point. Um, yay for Glorfindel. Um, and he's also... Glorfindel, I should say, is also there with this guy named Círdan, uh, who is canonically the only bearded elf. Uh, but I can't, I can't, I don't give a rat's ass about Círdan. Uh, uh, this is all Glorfindel all the time. <laughs> uh, so this is going to be the most basic question. It might just have a very basic answer. Did Gandalf arrive by boat or yeah. some other methods? Okay, just making sure. Yeah, no, no, it, it's totally legit. And there's actually kind of like a. At one point, I will sit down and actually write about this, uh, but today is not that day. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there's like a kind You're of... You're quoting Aragorn in the Gandalf episode. I've really, <laughs> really turned you here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a changed woman. Holy fuck. Um, <laughs> um, God, yeah. There's kind of this like mystical element to, to boats and boat travel, maritime travel. There's not. There's no kind of about it. There's a mystical element to boats and boat travel in, in Tolkien's writing. Uh, and so boats are like kind of not meant to be seen as like an entirely prosaic thing it's not just about like the timber and the sails there's sort of some uh semi transcendental moby dick ass experience uh in in taking a boat using a boat as transport so it kind of stands in in a lot of ways for these like mystical interdimensional uh journeys that like in in film we would now see with like the the light speed uh thing in the background the doctor who wormhole thing 
So, um, oh boy. Yep. All right. Uh, this is where I get to start dunking on Gandalf. So, so I'm happy. Uh, so Gandalf does stick mostly stick to his remit, uh, as a pilgrim, uh, Saruman, as I've said, kind of hungers down in Isengard, uh, the, the blue wizards go, I guess, off to Magaluf, Middle Earth, Magaluf, and, and never come back. Radagast, just a freak. Uh, Gandalf is kind of a, a perpetual wanderer. He he really makes these strong links with, um, you know, a wide variety of cultures uh, throughout Middle Earth. Uh, when we first meet him, um, it's because he's essentially operating as an agent on behalf of the dwarves. Uh, the the sort of wandering dwarves led by Thorin Oakenshield, um, who are seeking to reclaim their home in the Lindley Mountain in, in Erebor. Uh, and he he takes this quest to uh, a, a strange little creature that lives in a hole in the ground uh, and is called a hobbit. Uh, and, you know, the hobbits are, are a group of uh, beings who are not, uh, by, for the most part, excluding the Freelanders, of course, uh, are not contacted by the other beings in the world. They, they don't have a close relationship with the men. They, they sort of look at the elves from a distance and the elves look at them, but don't really say anything. And, and Gandalf is kind of the one who, who breaks that sort of impermeable barrier. And he also has a really close relationship with uh, the elves. Uh, And um, I think this is kind of one of the, the sort of key defining features of, of Gandalf's life. And, you know, it really, in some ways um, it really starts with, um, the fact that Círdan, the shipwright who 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 lords over, and I mean that quite literally, he is the lord of the the Grey Havens, um, passes off uh, one of the three rings of power made by Celebrimbor to Gandalf, and, and this is Narya, and it is the 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 red ring of power, um, and Círdan uh, is given it by by Celebrimbor after they're forged in Aragian in the Second Age, and Gandalf gets to town in the Third Age, and Círdan is rightly like. You must take this ring off me. <laughs> Don't fucking leave me with it. Uh, and Gandalf uh, takes it and is like, "Gee, pal, thank you for the gift." Um, and uh, is the bearer, the ring bearer of of Narya for as long as he is in Middle Earth, uh, and and straight through to when he returns to to Valinor um, from the Grey Havens again, which is from the location at that which he entered Middle Earth. I have a quick question for you, and I really apologize if you answer this like in your notes that I just haven't like skimmed yet. <laughs> Um, you're kind of like talking about their relation to the existing races on Middle Earth, the hobbits, the elves, the men. Mm-hmm. Um, the the men of the North, the Dunedain or whatever, they are like low key protecting the Shire. You know, um, they talk about that quite a bit in the books. Is that something they were set to by Gandalf? Is that something that like Aragorn or one of his predecessors kind of came up with? Uh-huh. Um, like- <laughs> yeah, no, it's a good question. It's uh Okay. All right. I'm going to do two things here. My take on it is it's, it's propaganda. Um, so the land that encompasses the Shire, right? So the, so Eriador is in the Northwest of, of Middle Earth. Um, a huge tract of Eriador was once the Northern Kingdom, uh, which was the, the other half of the, the sort of fallen kingdom, uh, to which Gondor was the, the the greater, I would say, the more important half. Um, and that northern kingdom is the one that encompasses um, Arthedain, uh, Rudar, and I have totally forgotten the other one, fuck, uh, uh, but the, the sort of three principalities. Um, and the Shire is kind of smack dab in the middle of all of that territory, of the territory that the kings, the northern kings, Isildur, for example, would have seen as rightfully theirs. Um, so the fact that this, that, so like, 
I'm not actually doing this to propagandize right now, but like Aragorn, uh, his people, the 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 the, the Northern Dunedain, um, I don't want to call themselves extremists, but they are like incredibly orthodox, incredible traditionalist in a lot of ways, and so they don't see the other, uh, the two other kingdoms that rose and fell uh, as legitimate successors or or as having claimed uh, a legitimate claim, made a legitimate claim to the throne of uh, Isildur's line. They see themselves as the only rightful descendant. Uh, of a sealder. Um, and so they will have necessarily seen the land uh, of every, like, of, you know, from the original border of the Northern Kingdom, uh, you know, east to west, north to south, they would have seen that as rightfully their land, um, not just to to have ownership over, but, but also through this, like, concept of noblesse oblige to protect. Um, and so uh, the question there, the, the sort of propagandizing versus not propagandizing question there is like, are they doing it out of the goodness of their hearts because they really care about the little folk or are they doing it because it's their land and you know, it's their fucking land. Um, Aragorn sells it uh, as they're doing it out of the goodness of their hearts because they really, really care about the, you know, the bartender who he calls fat and the hobbits who he calls stupid. Um, I would say <laughs> that they're really doing it because they don't sour on to fuck up the land that they, that they eventually want to reclaim. Um, but yeah, no, that was all sort of done of their own volition, uh, just as like, you know, just sort of out of like their own kind of concern with like territorial sovereignty. <laughs> no, <laughs> that makes sense. Grim. It's just, um, always trying to figure out cause the hobbits are basically unheard of by basically everyone past Brie. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm always just kind of curious, like how the various, people didn't hear about them or if they supposedly did have the protection of the Dunedain, like how that came to be. But I think you answered that great. So sorry to get in the middle of your spiel, but no, no, um, um it's, it is kind of interesting. Um, Cardolan, motherfucker. That's the third one. It's Arthedane, <laughs> Rudauer and Cardolan. God, that was going to kill me. Uh, yeah. So, so like the fact that there is that kind of isolation is both interesting and not interesting because the hobbits are like uniquely isolated in some ways, but also aren't uniquely isolated in a lot of ways. Um, like uh, the dwarves who hold up in the lonely mountain um, after uh, the after the quest to reclaim it um, weren't exactly outgoing. Like they weren't doing a whole bunch of trading. Uh, and you know the the dwarves Balin's crew who went to to Moria to retake Moria weren't heard from for like fifty years. Uh, and and nobody kind of it wasn't until the the sort of latter part of that fifty years they started going oh maybe that's a bit weird. Uh, maybe we should be worried about that. Um, or like you know Gondor has elves literally on its doorstep and has no contact with them at all except through sort of like myth and and the Rohirrim don't really talk to anybody they don't even really talk to Gondor who are probably their closest analogs in terms of like experience of of the earth um so that kind of like isolation is pretty endemic to middle earth certainly in the third age um Gandalf's uniqueness is that he crosses it uh like he is a true international man of action uh <laughs> and like really goes and talks to all of them uh and you know even my most cynical take on him like can't really diminish the fact that that is like a quite a unique thing to have happened um certainly in the face of like all the noldor elves like or or i should be careful with that noldor and half noldor elves like uh uh fuck uh, like Galadriel uh and Alrond uh you know they're they only really talk to the elves and even then they're quite picky Gandalf's like I talk to everyone <laughs> so props to him on that no that's great as part of his like talking to everyone all the time and having his fingers in every single pie uh, he gets involved in this thing called the White Council. 
Um, I should note, uh, just for the pedants out there, which is mostly just me at this point, um, <laughs> there are records of a white council having existed before the third age. Um, it actually met in the fir- for the first time in the second age, um, during which time it was decided that Rivendell or Imladris would be like the elven stronghold in Ariador, uh, which and that one is uh, Rivendell is in Rudar, uh, so so the sort of uh, easternmost part of the, the the northern kingdom, what would later become the northern. Kingdom. Um, that council, that iteration of the council probably included Gilgalad and Elrond, um, but we're not really given much more information about that, so we can't like conclusively say who else was there. Um, the White Council we really know and care about is the uh, one that kicks off in uh, 2463 uh, in Third Age uh, and kicks off in response to Sauron showing his ass at Dol Guldur. Um, and as, of course, like the, 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 the it's the Council of the Wisest and Most Learned People of Middle-earth. So it's got Saruman, who was appointed the leader of the Council, Gandalf, Galadriel, Elrond, Círdan, and Gilgalad, at least until he died. Um, so, uh, so, so these are the kind of alumnus of the alumni, rather, of of the White Council. Um, in the Third Age, they probably only met about four times. So, twenty four sixty three, which was their establishing meeting uh, for dealing with the old Golder. Twenty eight fifty one, uh, like some three hundred years later, when Gandalf was uh, promoting an attack on Dol Golder. Um, this is actually a, strategically, I'd say, a, a smart call for him. Um, Saruman vetoed it. Um, and this is kind of the first time at which Gandalf signals he may possibly know that Sauron's being a bit shady um, or is at least sort of tacitly interested in the rings of power, um, although doesn't have like any sort of evidence to, to accuse him of anything. Um, then in 2941, uh, which is just around the time, actually, that Athelion is being cleared uh of interest and in nobody but me, but there you go. The affiliates has <laughs> kind of started on then. Uh, the uh, Gandalf finally succeeds in pushing for an attack on Dol Guldur, uh, and uh, Sauron, who was searching for the Ring of Power, the One Ring, uh, in Anduin, uh, wasn't actually in Dol Guldur, uh, but does get spooked and and flees to Mordor. Um, and then twenty nine fifty three uh, is the last time the full White Council meets, um, and. After that, uh, Saruman kind of fucks off back to his tower uh, and his his kind of fall really begins in earnest then. Um, after 2953, like we don't have a huge amount of detail about uh, what kind of shit Gandalf's up to. Um, we do know in 2956, uh, he meets Aragorn uh, and they become besties and decide to coup uh, Denethor. Um, and uh, Gandalf also spends a decent amount of time in Minas Tirith. He's certainly there at least once in Faramir's youth. So Faramir is born 2980. Shit. Uh, 2980. Fuck. Oh my God. Boromir is 2979. Faramir is 2983. Got it. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. Dignity intact. Uh, so after 2983, uh, Gandalf is in Minas Tirith at least once, uh, and then he comes back uh, around 3011, no, 3016, I believe, uh, to check the archives for Isildur's writing about the, the One Ring. Um, in that time, he also uh, does a weird little thing with Bilbo Baggins. You can read more about that. I would not recommend reading more about that in the book The Hobbit um, or the great movies that were made in that book's honor. Uh, and that's pretty much it. And then we catch up to him in 3001 uh, when he's a bit of a weirdo at Bilbo Baggins' birthday. And the rest, they say, is history. Gandalf does a whole bunch of stuff during the war. After the war, he 
helps to crown Aragorn. Actually, you know what? I'm going to say that's not actually after the war. That's midway through the war. The war is not over yet. Uh, after the war, he does a bit more wandering. Uh, he's a bit of a weirdo, helps Aragorn to establish himself in Gondor. Uh, and then he goes to Valinor. Um, and he probably takes a massively fucking long nap. Uh, because that is what I would do if I had to walk around Middle Earth for uh, about two and a half thousand years uh, trying to make these morons organize themselves into something vaguely approximating a defensive force. Um, that's pretty much it. Uh, he probably spent a lot of time smoking with Bilbo uh, in Valinor. And you know what? Fair enough. Uh, that is truly the dream. That is the dream. Um, I was going to say, uh, do you, does the War of the Ring include the Scouring of the Shire? Yeah, uh, so there's that last battle um, uh, in the Scouring of the Shire, and once uh, once Saruman dies, uh, that's, or actually, it, rather, once Grima dies, that's considered the official end of the war. Yeah, okay. Because um, that's, that's always something that, uh, because I was more familiar with the movies forever, and they just completely skip over the Scouring of the Shire, it's just not a thing at all. Um, it was always interesting to me reading that part um, where... Gandalf's like, yeah, okay, Saruman's here or whatever, but like, this is your problem to fix now. After all the <laughs> shit we've been through, you guys are the ones who need to be able to do this. And like, I kind of go both ways on that. I'm like, yeah, you need Saruman's still kind of a wizard. It's kind of weird to leave him to the hobbits, but then also like, he's right. Like, mm. after everything that Mary, Pippin, Frodo, and Sam did, like, beating Sharky and his like little, like, what's it called? Hooligans. Like, it didn't seem like that much. And I feel like that was a great. Like, that's good for the hobbits in a way, or at mm. least for the storytelling of the hobbits as, like, now we're going to do this completely on our own. And um, yeah, I, I like it. It just, I don't know how exactly I want to read Gandalf's choice there. Like, yeah, he's kind of right to, you know, let them do it on their own because, you know, at some point you got to take the training wheels off. But also, like, you know, could have could have been bad. Could have been bad, you know. So. Yeah. Well, it's this kind of like central kind of tension for Gandalf's character, and I think this is actually true for most of the the, the sort of main characters and and these books. But like, Gandalf has like his kind of rich background that that Tolkien writes after the fact, uh, you know, through the Silmarillion or through whatever other bullshit it gets published by Chris Tolkien. Um, that makes him seem like this kind of fully realized and fully fleshed out person. Um, but in his sort of first two rounds in in The Hobbit and in The Lord of the Rings, he is a character that it exists to do A, B, C, and D. And so like you're like you're spot on. Like it, it does it is it works flawlessly for the narrative of The Lord of the Rings that he he backs off and says, you know, time to put your big girl panties on and go and go kill Grima and go kill Saruman. Um, but also, but like you say, like it is also weird from like a, if you treat him as like a real or not real, but like as like a, a full sort of person of his own, you're like, dude, what the fuck? Help these guys out. You are literally a walking nuclear weapon. Like at least help the weirdos out. Yeah, no, I, I, cause I think my instinct is just like, you should always help. Yeah. Um, I think that's generally the way to be. So, um, I, I, like in real life, it's not like, you know, I could help you, but this will be really important for your character arc. Yeah. And you really need to go this alone kind of thing. <laughs> but fair enough. Fair enough. Good morning. What do you mean? Do you mean to wish me a good morning or do you mean that it is a good morning whether I want it or not? Or perhaps you mean to say that you feel good on this particular morning? Or are you simply stating that this is a morning to be good on? All of them at once, I suppose. So let's talk about movie Gandalf. And first, we need to talk about who else was possibly considered to play the role aside from Sir Ian McKellen. 
And uh, who Peter Jackson actually wanted in the first place is a choice that makes my heart fucking sing. It was David Bowie. Oh, God, it's so um, good. Yeah. Um, it's, I mean, it borrows a little bit from Labyrinth because uh, he was wh- whatever that guy was. <laughs> I forget. Um, but, like, also David Bowie's just, like, so fucking iconic and it would fucking rule if he was in it. Mm. Um, although it is definitely a different tenor to the character. Yeah, I when I saw you put that in the notes, I had to like go stand up and take a, like a lap of the house because I was like, that is such like a kind of split response for me because that would be so fucking perfect. That would be incredible. Totally like against everything that Gandalf is in the book. But oh my God, it would be so good. Yeah, I'm also thinking about the fact like we don't get much Gandalf singing in the movies. We really only get in the extended edition. But if that was David Bowie kind of oh doing God. like the road goes ever on um, and the, like if they put a funky bass beat to it or something <laughs> like I could totally get get on board with that. Like it's just dance, but instead it's uh, or let's dance, whatever, the, whatever that song is. But uh, under uh, him singing the road goes ever on, I could totally oh get God. behind it. That'd be awesome. <laughs> Among the other uh Actors mentioned uh, Tom Baker, Chris Plummer, Patrick Stewart. I also want to flag that Sean Connery was also in that like short list of the running. Um, and this is like a big part of the end of Sean Connery's career because he was offered both a role in Lord of the Rings and then later to be the architect from The Matrix. Um, and then uh, he turned down both of them. Uh, possibly not even understanding what the roles were about. And then obviously the Matrix and Lord of the Rings were these, you know, huge successes. So he was mad that he didn't do that. So he signed up for the next IP that presented itself at his front door. And that would be the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. (laughs) And that's basically the last thing of note in Sean Connery's career. And Sean Connery, despite my fondness for the James Bond movies, is an extremely shitty person. So um, no no regrets there, but I just think it's funny that like he had a chance to be in two of the most iconic (laughs) modern-day cinema blockbusters ever, and then he turned it down and then wound up in one of the shittiest blockbusters (laughs) of the modern age. Feels like an appropriate turn for that man at that point. (laughs) So getting into Gandalf's makeup and costume... um, Ian McKellen had to wear a prosthetic nose, and that wasn't part of the original design for him. But when they started hanging, like, the beard and the hair and all the stuff on his face otherwise, like, his nose just got flat out lost uh, in the mix of all that. So they did um, have to do a little, you know, like, nose putty or whatever it is to uh, make sure you could see that, yes, this man does have a nose. This is not another (laughs) Voldemort type (laughs) hiding under the beard. Uh, Speaking of the beard, it was originally meant to be three feet long, so kind of like the long, strokey one that we often associate with, like, Merlin specifically, but just kind of the arch-type wizard of medieval lore generally. Um, And, I mean, Gandalf's beard is long here, but I probably would say maybe like a foot, a foot and a half, so about half the length um, of what they really wanted to do originally. For his gray robe, they actually had 15 different versions on set. (laughs) and which uh, and they went through a lot of them, and I think some of it was built for different like temperatures, depending if they were on set or like shooting on location, and also like mobility, you know, on horseback and stuff like that. Um, and they were all intentionally like worn in. They'd like throw mud on them, uh, kind of just run them through the ringer to give them a well-worn look, and like so it's like kind of threadbare. And they do something very similar with uh, Saruman's, um, even though he's, you know, Saruman the White, he's been wearing that fucking robe for who God knows how long. So um, <laughs> they, 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 a lot of the things we'll talk about with what they did with uh, 
Gandalf and Ian McKellen, like a lot of it will also apply to what they did with Saruman and Chris Lee. Um, but we're probably not going to do a full Saruman episode, I don't think. God help us. <laughs> uh, I'm going to uh, read a little bit about the description of his white robe that comes from Nagila Dixon, who was the chief costumer on the Lord of the Rings films. And quoting her now, what we wanted was a much more virile Gandalf. Take that how you will. And it was certainly how Ian McKellen viewed the character in the skies. He wanted to be able to fight. He wanted to be able to move. What we didn't want was the volume in the costume that we had in Gandalf the Grey. The other thing I wanted to do was to impart a little more elven quality so that we had a sense of him being part one foot in another world. We used some very beautiful fabrics in this. Again, they're quite subtle, and the immediate version to the eye is just a cream costume, but it has a lot more happening than that. Um, and you can see some of these elvish designs like on the sleeves, and he even has like elvish underwear or small clothes that are under like everything. Um, <laughs> it's not like so, Mormon underwear for elves. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do not know. Um, oh, God, now that you got that Mormon imagery in my head, I am never going to look at Gandalf the White the same again. <laughs> um, and like all of this, like these are parts of the costume that are never really shown on film or really only seen in like quick, quick glances, like when, you know, he's turning and the robe's kind of flowing. But it all helped McKellen feel like he is in character and not just wearing like a cheap party city robe on top of like whatever he had underneath. Yeah, I feel like the Gandalf the White uh, costume is definitely like one of the subtler but like best costumes in the films because um, he's got that like awesome Mandarin collar, um, which is which is pretty much the exact same collar style that we see Elrond wearing at the 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 uh, the, well, the Council of Elrond, um, and he's also got like the really cool embroidery at the hem of that cloak that he occasionally wears, and like some of it's a bit celtic inspired which i'm like okay not the right call i think they should have done like greek or byzantine but the fact that it is so subtle i think sells it so well and that also kind of ends up being like in a lot of ways gandalf's character in in the sort of the gandalf the white era of, of the the books and the films where he has had his big moment with the balrog and, and moria and now he is kind of mostly just there to like he's still there to be an incredibly impressive figure but he also kind of takes back seat occasionally to the more impressive acts that that are going on uh elsewhere whether aragorns or frodo's or uh literally denethor's uh or eowyn's like there's always something kind of more visually and 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 sort of narratively more impressive happening around gandalf but he still kind of undergirds it and that whole like subtle white silk stuff that he has going on really really sells that costume wise uh, and supposedly on set, uh, McKellen was a bit of a prop thief. Like, I think he just tried to take home anything he possibly could. I don't know if he was just trying to resell it or for the sake of it or because he's a klepto. Um, but that was a fun note I found in the research. They didn't really quite tell me uh, what he stole. Um, I assume he was gifted like glam drink or one of his staffs at the end of the production. Um, but uh, no details, but I just like to think of Ian McKellen as a klepto. That's really fun. <laughs> Um, one of the more interesting things and one thing I really liked is that um, he actually, uh, Ian McKellen actually looked to Tolkien himself as inspiration for Gandalf. Uh, he listened to audio recordings and BBC interviews with Tolkien and Ian tried to like do a quasi impersonation of Tolkien in his Gandalf character in terms of sound, speech patterns, mat 
mannerisms and things like that. The other fun part about McKellen's time on set, or rather with the Hobbit movies, is that he almost quit. (laughs) And I'm going to just read this quote here. McKellen revealed that he felt terrible while filming against a green screen. I felt so miserable and thought perhaps, has the time come for me to stop acting altogether if I can't cope with these difficulties? It was so distressing and off-putting and difficult that I thought, I don't want to make this film if this is what I'm going to have to do. And that's literally movies that were made 10 years after these Lord of the Rings films. So to see him completely like go from like being on set and a lot of you know practical effects and using you know tricks of the camera to bring alive the Lord of the Rings, how so much of the Hobbit production, which has a lot of cursed things going on from like changing directors to the non-unionized labor force. Um, it's just funny that he almost had a complete like, tur- you know, 180 degree turn on this whole thing and almost quit acting because of it. Mm. Uh, McKellen would also go on to lend his voice to various Lord of the Rings games. Um, Usually the ones that are pulling straight from the movies, like uh, there was like a series of actually really good PlayStation 2 games just adapting the movies. Um, So he lent his voice a little bit to that. Uh, His role in or Gandalf's role in these films beyond just being Gandalf. Um, He is a big exposition deliverer. I think I've praised these films many times for putting a lot of the exposition in Ian McKellen's mouth or Christopher Lee's or Kate Blanchett's. Mm. Just an excellent way to deliver exposition is giving it to those actors. He is both that mentor figure to Aragorn and Frodo, um, kind of that Merlin to King Arthur relationship, especially in the Aragon stuff. And then a little bit more so with Frodo just in fellowship. Um, but when, you know, Gandalf comes back, he mostly exists in the war storyline and not the destruction of the ring storyline. And I think uh, this is something that Emily really kind of explained well in our Fellowship of the Ring episodes, but he is such a grounding presence into the story that is very fantastical and was definitely more fantastical than most like Hollywood films were at the time. So to have him be there and to do that, quote unquote, small A acting, where he's not being big and grandiose and chewing the scenery, but really just grounding this very fantastical character into this fantastical world, but in a way that us real people in the real world can really have an avenue into it, um, I think is one of like the most impressive things that happens uh, in these films overall. It's just without Ian McKellen bringing what he does to Gandalf, um, I don't know if these films are as successful or successful at all, really. Yeah. So we're not going to talk about successful movies right now. We're going to first talk about the <laughs> Hobbit movies, which in my notes, I literally have kill me. <laughs> um, I'm going to do this all from memory because I did not want to rewatch the films for this episode. And I also did not care to like read a wiki article summarizing them. <laughs> so if any of this is out of order or slightly incorrect, just know that's me sparing my brain cells for the actual good stuff we cover on this podcast. <laughs> Uh, So he basically starts the Hobbit movies arriving at the Shire. You heard the little good morning clip to play us into the segment. And he finds Bilbo because he's looking for a burglar or a thief. Um, And that kind of kicks off the entire Hobbit adventure. It's very similar to Lord of the Rings in that sense and that Gandalf arrives and that kind of gets the main rising action going. Um, And then he kind of invites his pals over for a kegger at Bilbo Baggins' place. Um, And that scene is really when this movie started to lose me um, because they're just like kicking plates and knives and they're singing. And I get like wanting more of the song stuff in the movies, but it just it was such a tonal 
like 180 from what the Lord of the Rings was. I'm like, what is this? What am I watching? <laughs> um, to see like 13 dwarves singing and throwing plates and eating cheese all to song. I'm like, okay, this might be true to the spirit, but it's not in line with the aesthetic that I thought the original trilogy had laid down. Little did I know that it would get much, much worse. For me. <laughs> um, they set out for Erebor um, and they... It's, and this is where all the plot starts running together. They find a troll horde, which is notable because that's where uh, Gandalf will find Glamdring, um, and also where Bilbo finds the blade that will later be named Sting. Um, along the way, I believe they rendezvous with Radagast, or Radagast finds them. Um, we get a whole Radagast subplot in these movies, which, whatever. Um, he, apparently, he does a lot of mushrooms, which I can get behind, but he notices that shit's going down in Dol Guldur and that there might be a necromancer there. And he's the one who kind of goes and kind of lets Gandalf and the whole company know about this, but Gandalf's the only one who really understands what's going on, as far as I could tell. They make for Rivendell, which is, again, very similar to the Lord of the Rings saga. And we get to actually see him as part of the White Council that Emily broke down. We get to see him relay the information he got from Radagast that, hey, there's a necromancer and there's probably some foul stuff happening in the southern end of Mirkwood. Um, and we see Saruman here kind of be like, uh, you're probably being crazy, even though you brought a Morgul blade to me. Um, I still don't believe it. We'll see. We'll check it out. We'll put it in the queue on the Jira board for investigation <laughs> later. But um, he's also uh, the White Council is also kind of anti the dwarves and their quest to retake Erebor. Um, but Gandalf is actually providing a distraction so that all the people of the White Council are busy talking to him while Thorin Oakenshield, Bilbo, and the rest um, make for a pass through the mountains to make their way towards the Lonely Mountain. Um, but on their way through the Misty Mountains, they end up being captured or kind of, they like fall through cracks in the floor that are opened up by the goblins or orcs. Who knows? Who cares? Um, but if, eventually they are... Um, ensnared by the goblins and the goblin king. Bilbo's able to sneak away. He has a very, maybe the only decent scene in the entire trilogy with Gollum. Uh, but uh, eventually Gandalf shows up in the goblin king's hall. Um, he kills the goblin king in very unceremonious fashion. He just basically walks up to him and slashes his neck. And it's like, okay, um, that was great. <laughs> um, and then uh, they have to rush out of the mountains um, and they're pursued by orcs. Um, these are different than the goblins that had them. These are like Azog. Is that the right guy? Is that the right name? Yeah. Um, and uh, he's on his warg stuff and they get chased up trees. Um, and we see a little bit of uh, Gandalf taking a moth and like calling the eagles to him. And that kind of wraps the first movie um, oh, as God. best <laughs> as I can tell. <laughs> um, I'm hoping that's about where. Um, right before the attack is where um, Bilbo kind of rejoins the company and Gandalf gets a hint of, I think Bilbo found something or something happened um, that will, you know, kind of explain events coming later. Hopping over to the desolation of Smog, um, right at the beginning, uh, Gandalf just kind of fucks off to do his own side mission. Um, the company is entering uh, the Mirkwood, which is on their way to the Lonely Mountain, but I think he basically sees Saruman graffiti um, or signs <laughs> of the enemy, but he sees things and he's like, well, I got to kind of go and figure out if like the enemy is really back, especially given 
uh, Radagast, you know, information or intelligence. So I think he goes to Angmar. Um, I'm not really quite sure where the, where he goes, but he's essentially going to where the grave of the Witch King or even all nine of the Nazgul, as per the film's version of the Nazgul, are were buried or should be buried. What the fuck? And, Is this real? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, he fi- <laughs> and he finds that the Witch King's, uh, what's it called? Uh, grave is empty um, so fuck? that's his like impetus to go see like check out Dolgoldor um, and he basically I think he's able to uh, rendezvous with Radagast like ahead of time is like I am going to go do this thing I might not ever come back make sure that other people know about this or find someone else and I honestly don't remember what happens to Radagast from there um, but he definitely tells him that this is going to happen um, and then he goes to invest- investigate Dolgoldor um, and is eventually uh, captured and confronted by Sauron himself in a cor- uh, non-corporeal form. It's just kind of like a big flame shadow thing, which is kind of cool. But like, again, the movie sucks, so it's really hard to enjoy in the moment. <laughs> um, and he also sees that um, there are forces of the Dark Lord starting to gather in Dol Guldur. There's like an more orc battalion with wargs and all that kind of stuff. So Jesus Christ. Um, yeah, it's bad. <laughs> I really can't believe and they then, found a way to make a bad book worse. <laughs> <laughs> oh, never never doubt uh, ununionized labor. That's all I'll say for that. Uh, so now we're ha- uh, jumping over to Bofa, or Battle of the Five Armies. <laughs> um, and that movie kind of opens up with the White Council arriving at uh, Dol Guldur to save uh, Gandalf. And it's... Kind of fine. I think you're the one who said, put your whole weave ussy into it. And Elrond <laughs> oh, shows up in all his armor and sword yeah, and all he that. Yeah, does look cool as shit there. Uh, um, I, I don't hate the scene. I mean, it's goofy and dumb and stupid, but it's like, oh, this is, I, I am enjoying myself, which I hadn't been for much of these movies. So I'm like, okay. The, um, and you get to see Kate Blanchett actually do some stuff as Galadriel. Yeah. Um, she goes into her like goblin mode that we saw in Fellowship <laughs> when Frodo offered the ring and she kind of like does a bunch of shit. She also like single-handedly carries Gandalf away from this battle, which I thought was kind of cool. Mm. Um, you know, just kind of like the strength of the elves or her strength or whatever it is. Um, that sure is like that was interesting. And then at that point, he does stuff in the Battle of the Five Armies. Like I honestly know he's there. Like I can picture um, him and Bilbo like in the. What's the fucking town that's burned down in front of Erebor? Oh, Esgaroth, uh, uh, Lake Tom. Oh, okay. No, the other one. Um, the, that's it. That's all I got. I don't uh, know shit about this stuff. Dale, Dale, Dale. Oh, that's Dale. The one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, like, I definitely have memories of him being there. <laughs> what he did in that last movie beyond that, zero ideas. <laughs> I have no idea what his role was in the battle. Um, yeah. Any any thoughts? Did you do you remember? <laughs> so I th- okay. So so everything you were describing out of the second movie, I'm like I'm sure I've seen this film before, and none of that rings a bell. I've definitely like I watched the third one quite recently, and I am now in my head because I think I was so shocked by I knew ben, Billy Connolly was in it in mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the Battle of the Five Armies as a dwarf, but I think like. I had had a few drinks, and when we got there, I was so shocked that he was actually in, like, that and and had shown up there and that it wasn't, like, a kind of figment of, like, you know, maybe I had had some, like, booze that had gone very, very badly off and was, like, hallucinating <laughs> it or something. But, like, I genuinely can't remember Ian McKellen being in 
that movie at all. He's not with Thorin. Is it Thorin who fights Azog on that like yeah, fucking yeah. interminably long CG fight? I don't know where. I, mm-hmm. Yeah, I Jesus Christ. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I've, it it just like you feel like like you said like Gandalf's kind of a walking nuclear weapon, and for him to just get completely lost in a battle that I know he was at least in the films like somewhat present at. It's just yeah. like okay, like no like fancy white light thing or like any of his other tricks. Um, well, that's the other thing, right? Like, oh, I should definitely save this for when we get there in Return of the King. But like the reason that Gandalf is called away um, and actually the reason why I like flag the the Nienna and Pity stuff up at the top is like Gandalf has a scene in in the books less so in, in, in or sorry, has a scene in the movies less so in the books um, where he kind of it prepares to go toe to toe with the Witch King um, and and. It is ultimately implied that the only reason that Gandalf doesn't go toe to toe with the Witch King, and and he very likely could have destroyed the Witch King, uh, and it's it's Eowyn instead who has to go, is because Gandalf is called away by pity uh, to to go help Faramir, to go save Faramir uh, from Denethor's madness, and and so he is taken, motivated by this greater feeling of pity and 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 sort of desire to stop the the sort of uh, cycle of unnecessary or un, unearned grief in the world. And, and so he goes off, he takes his, himself as this nuclear weapon off of the battlefield to go do something that that sort of is a higher moral calling. What the fuck is he doing in the Battle of the Five Armies? <laughs> Explain that to me, Peter Jackson. <laughs> yeah, I, I have so many questions about that movie that we'll probably <laughs> dive into. Um, the only thing I remember is like it, it felt like um, who's the leader of the dwarves who shows up near that Dane is that sound Dane. right yeah um, and it's like the entire movie started like hyping up oh if Dane shows up we have a chance and Dane's coming or we got word to Dane so like I thought when Dane would show up it would be like this big reveal maybe they even got like a famous actor and it'd be like oh okay maybe this movie isn't all garbage um, and then it's just this giant CGI. <laughs> dwarf that's riding a pig and i'm like what the hell are we watching um i actually like the idea of riding a pig but like it was just like almost a fully cg character as opposed to like a person an actor um i was just like what what is going on what what were the decisions made you can Um, ride a boar in uh lord of the rings online so that's my obligatory once an episode pitch for lasho you could ride loads of boars uh, all around moria yeah, it probably was a boar, but it's just funnier thinking of it as a pig. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know what the difference is, so. <laughs> uh, I think one is more vicious and has tusks. Who knows? Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's enough about the Hobbit movies. As for the Lord of the Rings movies, maybe we don't need to go through all of that just because Gandalf really is a big mover and shaker of these films, and we're basically breaking down all his big moments in full. Um, and a lot of his big moments are still coming up at Helm's Deep. Um, and obviously, I think he has a bigger role in Return of the King than he does in Two Towers. Um, so instead, I'm going to turn a question to my co-host, Emily, not counting anything with the Balrog. What is your favorite Gandalf moment in the movies? <laughs> um, it's actually, and I think it actually tops the the, the Balrog stuff uh, now that I actually think about it. But when he grabs Merry and Pippin by the ears and makes them wash dishes after they set off the dragon firework. Uh, and then you just, it's the cut to him sitting uh, and smoking while they're cleaning and they're looking miserable in the background. Um, and it's such like a perfect little sequence of events uh, and it sets up all of their characters so perfectly because it's like Gandalf is like the partier, the 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 bad influence, the sort of fun guy who literally brings fireworks to the party. Um, but he's still a kind of somewhat dangerous wizard who can definitely lay 
down the law. Um, but he's still kind of human because he does smoke. Uh, and, you know, he is kind of uh, still like in, in control of a sense of humor because it, there's obviously something deeply funny about making Mary and Pippin wash dishes because they're both like spoiled little rich kids. Uh, and, and and then, you know, of course, the the sort of indirect building up of his character because Mary and Pippin shut up and watch wash the dishes because Gandalf has told them to like they aren't trying to weasel their way out of it when Gandalf says something they listen even these guys that are functionally uncontrollable and I just think that's <laughs> one of the the best kind of character moments in in the films oh yeah that's great I, I just really love the image of just him smoking his pipe while he's watching <laughs> Mary and Pip and they give him this like sheepish smiles like yeah we're doing the thing you told us to <laughs> um it's it just really really funny to me um so mine uh so it happens during the lighting of the beacons, which is a scene that I really love. I love the music to it. Um, and we'll, we'll get into that in full. But And this is not a great Gandalf moment, but it's like, I think one of the funniest is he has Pippin climb up the tower to light the beacons or whatever. But he's just kind of like standing there watching as like Gondor soldiers just walk past him. <laughs> so he just kind of does this thing where he's just trying to like, quote unquote, look casual, like he's not doing anything, like he's just chilling, even though he has like ulterior motives. It's just funny to me, just that moment. It's not really anything great, but no, it's awesome. As always, we will wind down this character episode with with a look at the Mandolf behind Gandalf, our lovely gay stoner grandpa, Sir Ian Murray McKellen. I'll preface the section with a caveat. McKellen has done so much and done so much really well that it's almost impossible to cover his entire career and go into all the accolades he's garnered. So this will be very abbreviated and probably more geared towards what me and M are more familiar with. McKellen was born on May 25th, 1939 in Burnley, Lancashire to Scottish and Protestant Irish family. <sighs> Being born when he was, he moved around a lot in his early childhood due to the war saying, only after peace resumed did I realize war is not normal. He's descended from a long line of preachers up to and including his father. One of the more fun branches in his family tree was his activist grandfather, Robert J. Lowe's, oh. who helped earn Saturday half days for the working class in Manchester, which predated the eventual five-day work week. His mother would pass when uh, Sir Ian was 12, and his dad would remarry, but his dad would also pass away when McKellen was 24. He, he would then later come out to his Quaker stepmother, who was incredibly supportive of him throughout. As a child, he'd get his start in acting at the Bolton Little Theater and would get a scholarship to St. Catherine's College in Cambridge for English Lit and start in 23 plays over the course of his three years there, also establishing relationships with stage directors he'd work with later in his career. McKellen's stage career is long and storied, starting in 1965 and basically spanning until now, working in both England at, and stateside on Broadway. It's hard to even begin to list all the roles he's played and accolades he's won, especially since I am not the most theater-savvy person myself. Uh, he, he was in Macbeth, opposite Dame Judi Dench, uh, Richard II, King Lear, Romeo, Iago are just some of like the Shakespearean uh, roles he's uh, played. And shocking no one, he spent a lot of his time or a lot of his career working in the Royal Shakespeare Company. He's also starred in several plays by Anton Chekhov, including Wood Demon, Wild Honey, and Three Sisters. 
Uh, he was Antonio Salieri from Amadeus um, in a production in which Tim Curry was Mozart, which sounds really awesome. I love Tim Curry as well. Um, Ian McKellen won a Tony for his role in Amadeus. And then more recently, post The Lord of the Rings, he's done uh, Waiting for Godot opposite his in-real-life bestie, Sir Patrick Stewart, and then just a bunch more Shakespeare that I won't even get into right now. Yeah, so I I don't want to be too wanky, though I love being wanky. Um, but I do actually kind of want to talk about the the, the kind of Shakespearean acting tradition in Britain because it, it's something that comes up a lot, I think, in particular in these films. Uh, and uh, maybe maybe goes unremarked upon. Maybe I'm not reading enough like crit or whatever. But um, but there is something kind of unique about uh the the tradition of Shakespearean acting in in Britain and and what sort of type and caliber of actors it, it brings. It creates rather molds. Um, so like Shakespearean acting now kind of has a reputation as like stiff and kind of overly formal and like very inaccessible acting. Like it's just dudes in tights reciting lines that nobody can unparse. Um, but actually, and I know this is like every like fun English teachers, actually Shakespeare is fun, but like actually Shakespeare is fun. Uh, and like Shakespeare was writing as the sort of lowbrow comedy for for the masses. Uh, that's why there are so many dick jokes. Like it's not because like dick jokes used to be highbrow or Shakespeare was being particularly subversive. It's because laughing about dicks has always been funny. Um, so like a lot of the original sort of Shakespeare like acting in in Shakespearean productions and and a lot of sort of medieval, uh, certainly English uh, acting w w was big. It was bay acting. It was about going for the lowest common denominator. It was going for like the 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 sort of cheap laughs, the easy tears, the you know really kind of swinging for the fences in a lot of ways. Um, I don't want to like give the impression that Shakespearean acting is still that. Uh, it certainly isn't. Um, but there are parts of that sort of tradition, that heritage, that like certainly remain to this day, even as uh, Shakespearean acting has gotten kind of smaller and, and uh, actors tend to play Shakespeare, uh, his his work closer to their chest, so to speak. Um, one of the, the the things that's kind of important is that like there's a lot less emphasis on natural realism. Um, and, and what I mean is like Shakespearean actors, when they are acting in uh, either Shakespeare's works or or just any any sort of acting role, um, have a sort of instinct to not approach the character as if they are trying to make that character relatable to Joe Schmo, who's going to the movie theater to see them at 12 o'clock on a Saturday. Uh, they are aware that these characters that they are portraying are larger than life um, and not trying to hide from that fact. So even if they bring a sort of like... Um, relatability or, or or sort of calmness to these massive uh exaggerated characters there's still not a fear of the fact that they are exaggerated there's not really a self-consciousness to their acting um because what the fuck can you be self-conscious about being over dramatic when you've literally played hamlet before you know what i mean mm -hmm. um and so you get like you you get this sort of uh, ability to handle these big standout roles in a way that doesn't feel overdone or or uh, like you are overacting. And, and that's kind of like, I, I would say, like a crucial part of, of Ian McKellen's uh, turn as as Gandalf is he's taking this um, enormous towering character from from literary history and, and making it feel uh, big and every bit as powerful, but without making it feel like a fucking Punch and Judy 
sketch show. Like there's nothing farcical about it. There's nothing like pantomime about it. It's huge and it has that sort of dignity and 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 immensity to it, enormity to it, but it's also not self-conscious about that fact and it's it's not trying to uh overplay in one way or underplay in another. Uh, it really kind of strikes that that important balance and I think that's something that that, that definitely comes from like the the, the Shakespearean tradition there. Um but then the other important part of uh sort of Shakespearean acting and and, and the production of Shakespeare's plays now um, is that because everybody's fucking done a Shakespeare play, everybody's been in a performance of A Midsummer's Night Dream, or everybody's been in a performance or seen a performance of Romeo and Juliet, um, is that directors and producers and actors who really, really want to have a, a production of these plays that that makes a mark have to work overtime to make clear stylistic choices that will set them apart from the rest of the pack. Um, so good Shakespearean actors uh, get intimately familiar with dealing with heavy stylization. Um, and that doesn't just mean like modernization. It's not just like the 10 things I hate about you putting it in 90 Seattle, although that is a good sort of example of that. It's being able to take unorthodox aesthetic uh, direction uh, and and not lose the sort of central human focus of of the lines of of the the, the sort of plot and the theme at work, uh, and and having that sort of familiarity with things, still feeling human and still being uh, like fundamentally understandable as art, um, without needing it to be you know the nitty gritty hyper realism where everybody's dressed as they would be in whatever year it is that they're filming, uh, and everybody's talking using that same sort of the, the common vernacular, and there's not really any sense of like difference or space between the actors as actors and and the characters they're portraying, um, and that I think also you know really comes across in in uh, again in <laughs> Ian McKellen's Gandalf because Gandalf isn't a character that anybody really meets in real life. We don't meet a a a, a a, a wizard who is as old as time itself, whose powers are so great, they literally have to be curbed out of fear of, of him taking over the planet. We don't meet someone who could do all of these things. Um, but Ian McKellen manages to make that still feel grounded and like something that we might well like he might actually walk off of the screen uh, and and that like all of these sort of interesting stylistic choices like when, you know with the the hard up shots that you get in uh in in fellowship they they you know are partially about establishing Ian McKellen or Gandalf is much taller than Bilbo but are also about establishing like his actual like physical power in a scene don't feel camp or not camp but they don't feel like shit acting or d like directorial choices they feel right they feel natural we don't even blink when we see this shit happen because we're like yes of course that's Gandalf that is how Gandalf must look necessarily um and anyway so so Ian McKellen is one of uh, several generations of of British actors who are uh trained uh or have uh you know decades of experience in Shakespearean acting either through the RSC or uh through uh, usually through Oxbridge yes uh, or or through any of the the sort of thousands of uh flowers that have bloomed in the field of Shakespeare Shakespearean acting uh and theater in in Britain uh and and the one kind of call that I want to make here and it might be slightly weird and slightly controversial and maybe not actually as grounded in reality as I hoped is that I think the fact of this heavy Shakespearean tradition in Britain actually means that British actors in the film industry tend to be better, more flexible and uh, like more sustainable, I guess, like they can last for much longer careers as opposed to American actors who are trained to fulfill one type, typecast 
they are all either going to be like little blonde waifs and once they are no longer itty bitty skinny 20 year olds they have no place in the acting world anymore or they are the sort of Tom Hollands, who if they can't break into the uh, sort of Gene Kelly thing, are kind of getting shoehorned into action. And once they no longer look like they could be an action hero, they're done for. The Ian McKellen's, the the unfortunately the Kenneth Branaghs uh, of of the the acting world manage to stay for as long as they do because they've got that steady grounding in uh, Shakespearean acting, which basically trains them to take uh, anything that 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 the acting that the cinema world throws at them and and roll with it really. Uh, so that's just kind of like one of these weird little bug boos that I've, I've had on my chest for a while that I'm finally getting to air like a crazy person. <laughs> yeah, no, that that's really interesting. So um, being the podcast old, I came up in a time where like we didn't know everything about every production ever or every movie that was coming out. Um, so it was just like very common, like when you would see someone like Ian McKellen cast as like Magneto or Gandalf, like when you would read about it in whatever, you know, I wasn't like reading variety or anything, but just like whatever I was reading all my movie news from, it would often just like go back to, Oh, his Shakespearean experience. The other one I really remember is Brian Cox, mm. um, who I like really like, but I remember when he was uh, cast to be like, he had actually been done a bunch of big films. Like he's in Braveheart and all this <laughs> stuff. But when he was cast to be in the second X-Men movie, um, I remember just reading, oh, yeah, and, like, he's most famous for playing King Lear over in wherever, <laughs> Scotland. Or, so it just, like, I feel like there was a time where any time, like, they were going to bring an older actor into something, like, the main credits they would run with would be their experience as doing Shakespeare plays and in live theater, as opposed to saying, oh, Brian Cox, who you might remember as Uncle Argyle from Braveheart. <laughs> um, it's more like uh, Brian Cox, who's famous for his Lear, um, you know, during this decade or whatever. So I don't know if that still happens, um, but I think it was also we know every actor that exists at all times now. Mm. Um, whereas, you know, 20, 25 years ago, like it was like, we didn't really know about, you know, that many British actors unless they were coming over and doing American films kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so it's like that, like Shakespeare, like history or experience was usually a selling point or at least like the number one resume builder that would show up whenever they would start showing up in American Hollywood films. Yeah. Well, it's like the acting equivalent of having like an Oxbridge degree, like, like not to be weird about it, but most people rightly will not have an opinion on the quality of one Shakespeare production, one RSC production to another. Like they're not going to really give a shit if the Othello was bad one season and the Coriolanus was great the next. They'll see Shakespeare acting and be like, oh, that's quite good. And it's sort of the same way that people will be like, you know, uh, the the fucking chemical engineering degree at Oxford may be absolute dog shit this year, but nobody's going to be like, oh, well, you have a chemical engineering degree from Oxford uh, and that's actually doing quite bad this year. So that's a really <laughs> shit degree. They're just going to be like, yeah, Oxford, great, whatever. Uh, and that's the like Shakespeare is to acting. <laughs> yeah, it's like an evergreen, always a good thing in your favor um, bullet yeah. point. So that's actually a good transition for us to take a gander at uh, McKellen's film career. He started acting for the big screen in 1969 with the trio of films The Promise, Alfred the Great, and A Touch of Love. 1983 is when he'd star in Michael Mann's The Keep, which I have not seen, but I'm currently trying to 100% man's filmography, so I hope to catch this one soon. And when I was talking about Ian McKellen on Twitter, this one was getting a very hard recommend from all my followers. So Michael Mann's The Keep. Check it out. 
1993 is when he'd start becoming a name, starring in Six Degrees of Separation alongside Will Smith and Donald Sutherland. And not long after that, he'd also star in Last Action Hero and The Shadow. <laughs> 1995 was the year of Richard III, which McKellen wrote the script for and starred as the lead, adapting the Shakespeare story to 1930s Britain, with Richard being a fascist trying to overthrow the crown. Uh, this one also had a dynamite cast, including Annette Bening, Robert Downey Jr., Dame Maggie Smith, Jim Broadbent, and others. He would get a BAFTA and Golden Globe nominations and win the EFA, which I'm not entirely sure what that stands for, but I definitely wrote that down in my notes. He also got nominations for writing the screenplay as well. Before his big blockbuster run, he had two more notable films. At Pupil, a Stephen King adaptation where he plays yet another fascist, a fugitive Nazi in this case, and the lead role in Gods and Monsters, which garnered a Best Actor nomination um, for him, but he would end up losing to uh, Roberto Benigni in A Life is Beautiful. And then we get to McKellen's blockbuster era. He was cast as Gandalf in 1999 while filming his other giant pop culture role, Eric Lencher, a.k.a. Magneto, from the X-Men films. They wish to cure us, but I say to you, we are the cure! The cure for that infirm, imperfect condition called Homo sapiens. They have their weapons. We have ours. We will strike with a vengeance and a fury that this world has never witnessed. And if any mutants stand in our way, we will use this poison against them. We shall go to Alcatraz Island, take control of the cure, and destroy its source. And then nothing can stop us! Let me just say I apologize for grabbing a clip from X3, which is a objectively awful fucking film, but it was the best YouTube had when I was looking because I was getting more Michael Fassbender hits than uh, Ian McKellen hits on Magneto speeches. McKellen would play the role of Magneto in four X-Men films and have a brief cameo in 2013's The Wolverine as you know, the Marvel guy, you really couldn't cast better than old Magneto as Ian McKellen. Um, and I'm just a fan of Magneto generally. I think he's like one of the best five creations under the Marvel Comics banner. And casting someone like Ian McKellen to be opposite Patrick Stewart's uh, Professor Xavier is basically back-to-back -back home runs from my point of view. I had only read a handful of X comics by 2000, but going off the animated series, my focus was never really on, you know, Professor X or Magneto, but on cool characters like Wolverine, Nightcrawler, Gambit, Rogue, Storm. I could literally go on for another 10 minutes listing my favorite X-Men. <laughs> but the films re-centered on Xavier and Magneto, which I think was a great but ballsy move. And in X2, X-Men United, my favorite of the X films, uh, it perfectly depicted Magneto as an anti-hero with a very compelling twist of character as both an ally for the X-Men, but working towards his own agenda of mutant domination in the end. I literally have to stop myself there because, again, I can talk about Mag Magneto and McKellen's portrayal of him at length. 
Fun fact, he was almost cast in Mission Impossible 2, and had he taken that job, it would have affected his abilities to film both X-Men and Lord of the Rings, which actually makes him of a piece with Hugh Jackman, who was originally considered for the villain of Mission Impossible 2, but when he didn't get that role, he ended up being cast as Wolverine. (laughs) Between Magneto and Gandalf, McKellen became a household name during the early to mid-aughts. He'd go on to star in films such as Sawdust, Da Vinci Code, and The Golden Compass before returning to Middle-earth for The Hobbit films and reprising Gandalf for X-Men, Days of Futures Past, in the early 2010s. He's more recently been in the live-action Beauty and the Beast and Cats, two movies you absolutely could not pay me to watch. Or uh, maybe you could. If you do a $100 subscription to patreon.com slash bomb, I will watch those movies. And if you do it, at least for Beauty and the Beast, uh, it will be an amazing uh, inversion of the usual roles on here because I'm a massive live action Beauty and the Beast apologist. (laughs) Oh, okay. Um, I I haven't seen it. Um, I haven't seen any of them. So if you're saying it's good, that legitimately it's it's objectively dog shit, but I will defend it to to death. (laughs) Very good to know. (laughs) Uh, He's had a fair share of TV roles, too, often in smaller and often in BBC productions. He played the role of Tsar Nicholas II in HBO's TV movie Rasputin, starring Alan Rickman as the titular character, and McKellen won a Golden Globe for that role and was nominated for an Emmy. He's also done uh, Saturday Night Live, and it really pains me to say this, he guest starred in a Simpsons episode that also featured Tony Blair, which bleh, and the turf who wrote Harry Potter, which bleh, <laughs> uh, He's mostly there to make uh, Macbeth jokes. Um, I th- if I recall correctly, um, it's basically like a bit where it's like, you know, we call it the Scottish play, not Macbeth. And then Homer says Macbeth over and over again. And I think he just gets like pianos falling on him from the above. <laughs> I, I barely, bar- but it's like something like that. It, it's a cute bit, but it's in a very, very regrettable, regrettable episode. McKellen came out publicly in 1988 as a gay man as part of a fight against Section 28, a homophobic law that was working its way through British Parliament. Ever since, he's been actively fighting for pro-LGBTQIA plus causes, though with all the caveats of working through charities and nonprofits under, you know, Western capitalism. Uh, yeah, sorry, because I can't ever let an episode end without just doing some intensely grim shit. Uh, so Section 28 was officially repealed in, in Britain in 2003 through the Local Governments Act. I'm pretty sure, God, please, nobody who knows more about this stuff than me, uh, quote me on that or hold, haul me up on that. I was five years old at the time. It's not my fault. Uh, but uh, huge kind of swathes of Section 28 in and, and Britain um, are still largely applicable or are being kind of brought back uh, piecemeal uh, through like particularly uh, diktats on on education, state education in the UK, uh, and mostly under the guise of protecting the children from the dirty, evil transes. Uh, so <laughs> uh, it is, uh, you know, this isn't really directly linked to Ian McKellen, but I, but I also think it's like really important that like, uh, while there is a kind of pervasive narrative just now that like the the fight for gay rights is, is over and that like the UK is like bashed in a progressivism, it absolutely isn't this is very much the heart of darkness right now and we are like by far and away ending up in a more socially conservative environment than than to be honest uh even the one that thatcher presided over in the 80s uh and so section 28 in name might be gone but like it's political legacy it's uh is very much still lingering with us now 
Yeah. And uh, I guess, you know, why not just get on our soapbox here? Like both, uh, I can't really speak for what's happening over in the UK and Europe, but, you know, it's pretty much part and parcel with what's happening in America, where uh, people are invoking very genocidal uh, language against queer people, specifically trans specifically, but, you know, they're, they're going to come for all of them. Um, so if you're a cis person or a liberal, um, you really cannot ignore this. Like, we got to defend our queer brothers and sisters, and I shouldn't even say brothers and sisters because that's gendered language, but, like, we need to be doing a lot more because every institution and, like, lever of the state is actively being turned against queer people, um, and we, we, we're we not doing enough, and the Democratic Party here is utter dog shit and is not doing anything about it. Um, so I just want to end with that little call to action that we, we, we need to step it up because we are bad shit's happening. Like it is getting really bleak here and we can't just be silent word. And that closes the book on this episode of my brother, my captain, my podcast. Our email is my brother, my captain, my podcast at gmail.com and my bro, my cat, my pod on Twitter. You can support this podcast by subscribing to my Patreon, patreon.com slash Bomb. which Bomb, hey, that's me. I've been Manu. You can find me covering Metal Gear Solid over at Podcast Sans Frontiers. And I've been Emily, also known as JRR Tweeting, where you can find me on Twitter hyping up the Balrog for round two. Let's finish this fucker off Boogaloo. <laughs> Toasting a pint to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, aka DJ Empirical on Twitter. Please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. So until next time, remember, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king.